But we had a dream that we would be a part of what God is doing here in central New York. That we would see God's glory go all over our city, all over our community, and to just play a small part. And it was, and it's, it was really humbling to see Brandon talk about what God is doing in that ministry at Renovation Church. Renovation Church. And that we're all in this together. And it really started by just God moving in each one of our hearts to be a part of something. And we are all in this together. We are all partnered in this together. And we had so many people that would look at us I remember Jordan and I wanted to come up here and we would, we would visit central New York and we would ask people, What's, what is God doing here? And we would dream with Jeremy and we would all just sit and people would look at us like we're crazy. God doesn't move in central New York, but the reality is God moves in central New York. God is in the process of redeeming a people back to himself. Not just in, in places like India where we hear of these great harvests happening of people saying yes to Jesus but right here in central New York I just met today with a young couple who has been coming to Missio for a short amount of time and they approached me after a after a message a couple weeks ago just looking at me going we want to know about Jesus we want to know who he is we want to know what he's all about can you please meet with us and it's just amazing to see what God is doing and so be encouraged renovation church that you are not in this alone that we are all in this together. We are all fighting for the glory of God under the headship of the same, same king, Jesus Christ, and he is doing great things. And so thank you for being faithful partners with us. Thank you for being faithful partners with Brandon and Elena and what they're doing down in the university district. Thank you for being co-laborers for the glory of God in this area. And do not grow weary in doing that which is good. Because our king is powerful. He is glorious and he is mighty and he is on the move. And it is a pleasure for me to be here and be able to open up God's word with you tonight. And what I'd love to do, I know Matt just prayed for us, but I'd love to pray again and then, uh, and then we'll get started by diving into Colossians chapter 3. Father, we do come to you in the name of your son, Jesus, and God, we thank you. Uh, we thank you for that privilege. God, I thank you for every person that's here at Renovation Church. I thank you for what you're doing in the hearts and the lives of people here, and I pray, God, that you would continue to strengthen this body according to your glorious might with all patience and endurance, Father, May they give thanks to you for all things because you have delivered them out of the dominion of darkness and transferred them into the kingdom of light for your glory and yours alone. And Father, through these people, through your church outside of these walls, Father, use us. Use us in your mission to exalt the name of Christ above every name. Use us, God, to help be a part of bringing that message of salvation to every person in this place. And God, as we open up your word now, I pray, God, that you, would, that you would reveal yourself. I pray that you would quicken our hearts to obedience. I pray that you would quicken our hearts to worship. And I pray that you would shape us into the image of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So we're going to be looking at a passage, Colossians 3, 22 through 4.1, where Paul addresses slaves 
and masters. But before we get there, I want to take just a moment to remind us of where we have been. And what we see is what Paul has done is in the first chapter, he writes this great introduction about how he thanks God for the church in Colossae, what he prays for them for. And then he begins to set up in the middle of chapter 1, all the way through the end of chapter 2, this great theology of the sufficiency of Christ and the centrality of Christ. And then in chapter 3, in the first four verses, he writes these hinge verses that, that attach the theology into practical living. And then after verses 4 in chapter 3, he begins to write out what it looks like to live a life in light of that theology. And what he says in those first four verses of Colossians 3 is he says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And there is so much there. But before we get into uh, the passage we're looking at today, it's important for us to hear these verses and remember where we've been in this book. And first and foremost, our focus in life as Christ followers should be on the person of Jesus Christ. That's where our primary focus should be. And if we're not careful, this world will begin to take our focus off of Jesus. If we're not careful, we'll begin to think that, that bills are the most important thing, or life status is the most important thing, or like when my wife and I first moved up here to central New York in 2007, we had three kids, about three and a half, 18 months, and three years old. We thought we were going to drown. Every day, it was we had three kids in diapers, three kids that needed to be fed all the time, three, and we didn't have any family or anything, and it was like, oh my gosh, we're not going to make it. And my mom would say, you're going to make it. No, we're not. I'm going to jump off the roof of this house. <laughs> you know? We could be thinking that our trials and the sufferings we go through might define us. But the reality is our focus should be on the person of Jesus Christ, on the hope of the gospel and where he is. Because if we put those four verses in the context of what he's written already in, in, in Colossians chapter 1, we see that our focus should be on the person of Christ because number one, of his supremacy. You look at verses 15 to 23 of chapter 1 where Paul writes this grand theology about the supremacy of Christ. That he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, rulers and authorities, dominions and thrones. It was all created through him and for him. That he is before all things that in him all things are held together that he would have priority over everything and I love this verse that in everything he might be preeminent ponder those verses because the beauty and the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ nothing on earth compares to him. 
focus your time and your energies primarily on the supremacy of Christ. When things look like they're coming apart at the seams in your life, remember he holds all things together, including your life. And his grace is what's giving you your next breath. At the same time, this, this, this sufficient and supreme God is spinning planets, knows everyone by name, is holding it together by the word of his power, Hebrews 1 tells us. And at the same time, he's big enough and intimate enough to know the number of hairs on your head, the number of breaths that you've breathed up to this point and how many you will breathe in the future. He is supreme. In all things. Why would we possibly consume the majority of our thoughts on anything else? Our focus should be on the person of Christ because A, of his supremacy, uh, B, for his sufficiency. Paul goes on in Colossians 1, starting in verse 24, real, pretty much through verses chapter 2, verse 5, where Paul is setting up that Christ is completely sufficient. He's completely sufficient for your pursuit. He's completely sufficient for, for pursuing knowledge because he says, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ is not only supreme, but he is sufficient for all of life. Oh, how I am humbled and how I am convicted by the fact that I theologically understand that Jesus is supreme and sufficient, but yet my time and my mental energy and the way that I gain my, my, um, my satisfaction is so often deceived into thinking that other things are more important and bring more meaning. When Jesus Christ in himself, in his person, Supreme, supreme and entirely sufficient. Look at what Paul says where he says this. Gosh, I'm, I'm just going to preach the whole book. I'm sorry. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. I know you handled that verse well. Of which I'm becoming a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but has now been revealed to his saints. The mystery of God has been revealed to us. And what is it? To them, meaning us, the church, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The sufficiency of Christ. And our focus should be on the person of Jesus Christ, not only because of his supremacy, not only because of his sufficiency, but also because of his perfect work, which this supreme Christ who is sufficient did on our behalf. Where Paul writes in Colossians 2.6, really through verses 23, where Paul says, don't be taken captive by elemental teachings of the world. Don't think that by walking in these silly religious uh, uh, practices that they're somehow making you more sufficient, that it's Christ and these things. It is only Christ's perfect work that makes us complete and whole. Look at what he says here. He says, gosh, there's so much good stuff here. Starting in verse 20, why not? 
If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why is if you were still alive in the world do you submit to its regulations? Just before that, in verse 17, he's talking about that these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels and going on in detail about visions puffed up, with, uh, puffed up without reason by a sensuous wine, uh, mind and not holding fast to the head from which the whole body nourished and knit together through, through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God that all stands on the perfect work of Jesus Christ. So church, our focus should be on the person of Christ because of his supremacy, because of his sufficiency, and because of his perfect work. And when we have embraced Jesus Christ as our Savior, our image has been and is being made new. We are saved. The Word of God tells us that the purpose of life is to be in relationship with God and to represent God in the world. And when we are without Jesus, our relationship with God is broken. And our representation, our image is marred by sin. But in Christ, he has brought us back to himself where we now have relationship with God. And then the spirit of God makes us new. We are regenerated. Our old life of sin is gone. Our new life is being uh, shaped day by day, moment by moment to represent and reflect reflect who Christ is to the world. Look at what it says in Colossians 3 verses 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That's representation. Standing on the supremacy of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ and his work, we are being made new, patterned after his image, which means everywhere we go as Christ followers, the Spirit of God dwells inside of us, and wherever we go, God goes, and we are growing in Christ-like character, so that we not only put the gospel on display with our words, but we put the gospel on display with our actions by our attitudes, by the way we make decisions, by the way our character begins to a little bit more every single day look more and more like Jesus. Our lives have been redeemed to bring him glory as we grow in Christ-like character. And we do this by throwing off our old nature of sin and embracing our new nature this is what the big section of Colossians 3 looks like before he gets into husbands and wives and children and slaves and masters. He's saying, because you have been saved by the perfect Christ, because your nature has been shaped and is being made new into the image of Christ, do not hold on to your life of sin, but take it off because you are no longer enslaved to it anymore. It, it, it is amazing to me when I began to, to look at my own sanctification and when I began to see the, past, the, the, the people that I've had the privilege to pastor is that so many of us default to, well, I'm just a sinner, but thank God he saved me. And this is just who I am and I'm never going to overcome my sin. 
What if our default position began to shift from that into the spirit of God dwells inside of me? The dominion, which means the power and the ruling authority of sin over your life has been cut, Romans 6 tells us. It no longer has dominion over you. We have a choice, and that choice is to either continue to live in the filth of our sin, denying the new nature that has been given to us in Christ, choosing death, or by the freedom and power of the Spirit of God, walk in life. And Paul is saying that dominion has been cut. Take it off and grab the new nature that he's given to you in Christ. You can, not because you can, but because the Spirit of God that dwells in you is empowering you to put on love, humility, kindness, meekness, patience, that we're able to bear with one another because of our love for each other. We're able to forgive one another even as Christ has forgiven us because these are, this is what it means to be in his image. Being in his image means we begin to display his character. And this affects every area of our lives. Just like my marriage to my wife affects every area of my life. I'm not just married when I'm at home. I don't just want to live to please my wife when I'm at home. And then when I'm out golfing, oh, I'm not, well, that's my home life. This is my golf life. They're very different. Or when I'm at work, well, this is my work life. It's not my married life, so it's different. I'm, no, because I'm married to my wife. That relationship transcends every area of my life. How much more is this true when we come to the sufficient, perfect, supreme Christ? Where we are not just followers of Jesus at church. We are not just followers of Jesus in missional community. We are not just followers of Jesus when we need him. We, well, first of all, we always need him. We are followers of Christ Everywhere we go, every breath we take, every situation we find ourselves in, we are marked by Jesus. And that new area, or that, that identity, affects our biblical community. It affects our marriages. It affects our parenting. And it even affects the way we work. And so we find ourselves, with this context, stepping in to Colossians 3, starting in verse 22. Where Paul writes, bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Paul is writing to a Roman world. And when you would walk a Roman city, upwards of 50% of the people that you would see on the streets would be slaves. The entire Roman culture was built on slavery. 
Paul will often get and the apostles will often get ragged on by our culture today because he doesn't come right out and say, slavery's wrong. Well, let's remember that the apostles' primary job was not to be a social activist. Their primary job was to propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I would submit that because of the biblical principles that are set forth in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's why slavery has been taken down to the point that it has been today. But Paul's main job is recognizing that I'm here to propagate the gospel. And so my primary job is not to destroy slavery because that is a much bigger system. But I want to propagate the gospel. So slaves, here's what it means to follow Jesus as a slave. Masters, here's what it means to be a follower of Jesus while you're a master. Put the gospel on display in these contexts. And it's funny to me, of all the things that he's written, he's written about husbands and wives and children, masters, he writes twice as much to slaves as he does to anyone else. And a proper context that we can take for our day is the work or employee-employer relationship. What does work mean? What does work mean for us as we step in with our new nature? Remember who you are in Christ. Remember the sufficiency of Christ who holds you together. That as you step into that place that you call your job, whether you are an employee or an employer, what does it mean to work in such a way that your eyes are fixed on Jesus? Well, Paul tells us first and foremost, if you're an employee, for, first, if we look at, at this whole thing, this phrase came to my mind, the way we work matters. The way we work matters. And Paul writes to these slaves, these bondservants, and says, obey your, in everything, your earthly masters. Now, let's press pause for a minute, because Paul is assuming as he's writing to the church, that he's writing to slaves and masters who are believers. So someone will say, you mean if a, if a master wanted a slave to go murder someone, that they should do that? No. The broader context of scripture would tell us that, we, that Paul is not saying that if your master tells you to do something that goes against God's will to do it, we ought to stand for God. But he's assuming here as he's writing to the church that there are believing masters and believing slaves. And so as you step into that household, obey them in everything, right? But it's amazing to me how when I stepped into, when I think of my work past and my work history, when I talk with other people about their work, we always take the posture of, oh, can you believe what my stupid boss is making me do? Paul, you never deal with this stuff, do you? What would happen, what would it mean to the work environment if every follower of Jesus there did not take the cynical position, did not take the, I'm going to do just enough to not get fired, but actually said, you know what, I'm going to honor my boss, and I'm going to work really hard, and when they ask me to do something, I'm going to do it. Because here's the deal. 95% of the things your boss is going to tell you to do is not going to be necessarily against the scriptures. Right? I mean, can we just be honest about that? They're going to ask you to stay late sometimes. They're going to ask you to do a little extra project. They're going to ask you to do, do it. Let our position be one of submission. Sub 
submission. What if that was our posture as Christ followers? Because we want to put the gospel on display. And that he says, not only are we to obey our masters in everything, which I think that we just need to stop there and go, is my general disposition as an employee with my eyes fixed on Jesus that I am going to be an obedient employee for the glory of God and the good of the person that I'm serving? Just that would turn the whole workplace upside down. But then he says this, that we're not only to obey our masters in everything, but then he qualifies it, not by way of eye service, which means I'm not just going to work hard when I'm being watched. I'm not just going to, I mean, I'm not even working, uh, I'm not even working hard so other people will notice me. You ever had those people? They work like this. I'm working really hard. Are they looking? Are they looking? Huh? I'm working really hard. I'm working hard right now. It's like I, to my shame, I did something to help my wife out a couple, of week, couple of weeks ago. And I full, one Saturday morning, I got up. I got all the kids up. I made breakfast. I cleaned up breakfast. Then I went downstairs, and I folded the laundry. And then I came back upstairs, and I vacuumed the whole house. And I did all this stuff. And then I walked in, and I said, hey, Tara, guess what I did? And she's like, what? I'm like, I did this, I did this, I did this, and I did this. Aren't you happy for me? And she looked at me, she goes, I do that every day. She's like, what do you want from me? I'm like, I wanted you to see that I loved you. (laughs) Right? But what if we didn't take that position? What if we didn't act like the guy in office space (laughs) that comes in 15 minutes late hoping no one sees you? That you leave just a little bit early? That I'm going to take that pen or I'm going to take that, 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 what do you call those things, a paper? Stapler. No staplers. Don't take staplers. You know, that I'm not going to work hard so that I get a promotion. I'm not saying promotions aren't bad. I'm not saying, but don't, what's your motivation? Is your motivation to glorify Jesus or to hear this from people? And so he says, don't do it by way of eye service. Don't do this as people pleasers. But to work with a sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Our effort in our jobs must not be condescending. It must not be self-seeking or having ulterior motives. I see this all the time with my kids. Can you please go clean up your room? (gasps) You come in, they cleaned it, but you know what? I really don't care. (laughs) Right? You see this with employees all the time. How many times have we been in an office environment or any sort of a job environment and what does everyone love to do? Complain. Complain, 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 complain. My job stinks. Life stinks. Can you believe my boss asked me to do this? I can't believe what's happening right now. Do you believe that my boss won't let me have Friday off? Who are you working for? I sat with a husband and wife not long ago. And there's a situation going on in their life. And I, and I looked at the husband and I said, if the worst case scenario happens, what will you do? And he said, then I, I'm going to leave. I'm out. So I said, here's the deal. I can no longer counsel you. Because the minute divorce is on the table, I'm wasting my time. And you'll always have that in your back pocket. But here's my question. How do you square up the gospel with you bailing? 
How do you square up the God that is faithful to you even when you're not faithful? The God that has freely forgiven you but you're not willing to then give forgiveness. Jesus calls you a wicked servant. Would you rather save face or put the gospel on display? When you work, are you there for you? Are you there for saving face? Are you there for your own self-seeking, self-gratification? And that they are blessed with your presence. Or are you there for the glory of God to put the gospel on display, being thankful that you have a job and that God is providing for you and your family through it? Which do you want? You can't have both. And so Paul says, obey in everything our masters, not by way of eye service, not as people pleasers. Our work should be done with our eyes fixed on the reality of who God is and honoring him as we honor others. See, we've got to understand this. If we want to honor our God, then we honor others. We serve others, we respect others, we care for others. Make no mistake about it, we are not honoring God as we treat other people with contempt. We are not honoring God as we live in a selfish posture. We honor God when we obey the word of God because we love him. And we seek to put ourselves in this type of a posture. And then he goes on in verses 23 and 24 where he says this. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And what I see is not only are we to obey our earthly masters in everything, not by eye service or people pleasing, but we are to worship Christ with the way we work, with our eyes fixed on the hope of the gospel. Look at what he says. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive your inheritance. It is so easy to be blinded by temporary things. It is so easy to only see what we could put our hands on. But the reality is, no matter who your boss is, you are working for the Lord. Work hard for him. Work for his name, work for his honor, work because you love him, work because you want to put him on display. Every aspect of our lives is an act of worship, Romans 12 tells us. Where Paul writes after he's written this beautiful theology in chapters 1 through 11, he begins to look at praxis like he does here and he says, therefore, in view of God's mercy, Offer yourselves as living sacrifices to the Lord. I love the way Eugene Peterson talks about this verse in the message. He basically says, this is the Jim Murphy paraphrase of the Eugene Peterson paraphrase of the scriptures. Therefore, take your life, your ordinary, everyday, standing, sitting, laying down life, and give it to God as an act of worship. I know that it's hard. I know that there are going to be things that stink. But what if every morning we woke up with a posture saying, Lord, be glorified and may I worship you by the way I work today. 
May my eyes be fixed on you and the hope of your gospel, knowing that, that you are who you say you are and that I'm ultimately looking for the reward and the inheritance that you give me. When we work with our eyes fixed on him and we work hard, we make much of him and put the gospel on display. And he is the one who will reward us. He is the one we are ultimately serving. And we must trust Christ with the outcomes of our futures and seek his glory above our own self-preservation and promotion. Do we trust him? Are we willing to at our jobs to obey in everything our earthly masters, not by people pleasing and not by way of eye service, but fixing our eyes on Christ saying, God, I'm doing this for your glory and I trust you with my future. I'm doing this for your glory and I trust that you are the giver of all good gifts and rewards. Or am I trusting my own efforts, me saving my own face and me carving my own destiny? That's idolatry. That's not trust. And then I love this because you could just imagine that Paul knows what he's writing and he could probably hear what people are thinking. And then he goes, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. I love that. That's Paul saying God's got your back. It's almost like you see Paul, like, like maybe I'm making too much of this, but Paul's writing this, puts his pen down, thinks about it for a minute. He goes, I need, to, I need to let them know that God's got their back. You see, God shows no favoritism and he judges us all with equity. And as we lay our hands in his life, trust that he is the rewarder of those who love him. And he is also the one who will come to your defense. That's comforting, right? That's so comforting. And then Paul shifts to masters. And he says, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Those in, a position, those in positions of authority should seek to worship and represent Jesus by the way they treat those that they lead. Christ is the head of us all. And what would it look like if you are someone in authority, whether you're in authority over a whole company, a division, or a couple people, that you went in there saying, I want to honor Christ because he's my master just as he's their master. And I want to be just and I want to be fair. Thus putting the gospel on display. Because God is fair, he judges us all with equity. And he is certainly just. And so I have three, well, Sometimes my lists turn into 10. So I have some questions for you to ponder. Number one, what or where are your eyes fixed? What defines your reality? If you're not careful, anything but the reality of Christ will 
steal your gaze. If you're not careful, what defines your life will not be Jesus. And hear what Paul says. Go back and read Colossians and worship him because of Christ's supremacy, of Christ's sufficiency and his perfect work that he has done on your behalf and how he's renewing your image after his glory. So when Christ, who is your life, is revealed, oh, it's unbelievable. What defines your reality? Number two, what kind of employee are you? I mean, really, what kind of employee are you? Are you the kind of employee that wants to honor Christ? Are you the type of employee that wants to come in every day going, how do I put the gospel on display here throughout, through my obedience to my superiors, to my, to my respect to those around me, to the way that I work heartily with my eyes fixed on Jesus because I really know that I'm ultimately not serving you, Mr. or Mrs. Supervisor, but I'm serving Christ and I do not want to dishonor him. I do not want to harm him. I do not want in any way to misrepresent him to you. The way we work is not only a display of the gospel, but it's missional. It's missional. It will provide opportunities for you to begin to proclaim Christ as you work different than everybody else. Don't grumble like everyone else. Don't gossip like everyone else. Don't stab your boss or your employee in the back when they make you angry like everyone else. Live with your eyes fixed on Jesus. What kind of employee are you? And I would even say this. This is going to get crazy. Like we're about to get crazy up in here. But as you wrestle with that question, and you begin to realize that you have fallen drastically short, go to the people that you have wronged and repent to them. Go to your boss tomorrow and say I want to be honest and tell you that I have not been a faithful employee to you and I apologize I love my God and I respect you and I'm sorry for the for anything that I've done that has hurt you or wronged you and I pledge that I'm going to do better have the courage to do that if you've come to the point where you've realized I've done something wrong if you've hurt another employee or participated in any gossiping that's going on, repent and watch what av avenues and opportunities that will open up for you for the glory of God. My grandfather told a story. Uh, he worked for Abbott Laboratories. He fought in World War II and then he came back home and he worked for, for Abbott, which is in North Chicago. And he was just a little line worker and he had this one, uh, this one moment happen where the boss, the, the CEO of the company, gave everyone a day of vacation and paid them. That wasn't expected. And my grandfather wrote him a letter, wrote the CEO of Abbott Laboratories, right? This is not a small company. He wrote him a thank you letter, just saying thank you 
It meant the world to me that you did this, blah, blah, blah. And he sent the letter off. About two weeks later, he gets a phone call from the, from the CEO's secretary saying, Bert Gillenberg, so-and-so wants to see you in his office today at 2 o'clock. My grandfather said as I walked up into that huge office where the CEO of a multi-billion dollar company's desk was right behind that door, he's like, I was terrified. <laughs> right? The CEO called him in. And my grandfather's like, hello. <laughs> and the CEO said, I have over 30,000 employees. You are the only one that showed gratitude. And I want you to know I know your name. And I thank you for appreciating what we do here. My grandfather said that changed the trajectory of his whole career. That's not why he did it. But think about it. When we put the gospel on display in ways that are different from everybody else, who knows what God will do? This is not a prosperity message, but who knows the opportunities that God will do as he gives you a share of your inheritance, as he, as he helps you put the gospel on display, as you have someone who's hurting in your, in your sphere of influence when you may not be able to proselytize on the clock, but they'll come to you and go, can we go grab lunch? I need to talk to you about something. Where are your eyes fixed? What defines your reality? What kind of employee are you? And lastly, if you are in a position of authority, do you seek to honor Christ by the way you treat those under your care by being just and fair? Let's pray. Father, we come to you and God, I, uh, I pray that our reality would be defined by who you are. I pray, God, that we would learn to really trust you. That we would learn to live our lives as if you are truly real. That we would read verses like Colossians 3 that says, When Christ who is your life, God, you are our life. You are the very breath that we breathe. You're the strength in our step, God. May we learn to trust you with our futures. May we know that the same God who has been faithful for, agent, or for ages past will be faithful to us in the present and in the future. And God, help us to be the kind of employees that live for your glory, that work for your glory. May we not be people pleasers. May we not do this just to get recognition, but may we do this as a sweet fragrance to you, our God and our King. And God, may we lead well. May we lead in a way that's just and in a way that's fair. May we model your leadership. And God, please, for all of us, may the totality of our lives, in an ever-increasing manner, put the gospel on display to the world around us in word and in deed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and respond to that message.